I'm Katie Daly. Welcome to Bluegrass Stories. In this episode, Howard Parker talks with Tara Linhart, who wears many, many hats. Musician, educator, event producer, photojournalist, musical travel organizer, and documentarian. Tara grew up in Loudoun County, Virginia, but her musical interests have taken her all over the world. I have been... um digging deep in the Tara Linhart archive, and I, I cannot think of one person that has worn as many hats over the years as I think you've worn. <laughs> let, let, let me run down a short list here. Uh, music educator, uh, travel guide, uh, event producer, I'm thinking of the Loudoun County uh, Bluegrass Festival, uh, photojournalist, photo uh, Bluegrass Today, and uh, documentary producer, uh, both in the in the short form and the and the longer form. So, um, since we typically like to start back at the at the beginning, um, what what's the beginning for Tara Linhart? Where did it all start? I guess when I was really little, I liked uh, music and I wanted to play, so I got a guitar. And my parents got me like classical guitar lessons, which yeah, was not all that fun, but I, I managed to find some fun things and wrote some songs and um, that were not classical really. But uh, anyway, so that I guess started when I was about seven, but then um, I just dabbled on and off because I didn't discover anything really fun like bluegrass for quite a while. <clears throat> if I had, I think life would have been different because, um, you know, I, I played guitar on and off just, you know, with friends or at school or something like that. But then I guess probably like high school, I, um, I got my license and I was from a very small town area. It was barely even a town. It's more of an area, uh, Taylorstown. And my best friend and I, who both lived in Taylorstown, she was the bottom mountain and I was the top of the mountain. We'd been walking back and forth uh, up and down the mountain for years. And I finally got a car and we could go someplace but we couldn't go any place where we had to r- ride on a main road. So the only place we could really go out was Luckett's, <laughs> the old schoolhouse in Luckett's. So when Maura Larson and I were going to go, you know, go to town and go see some shows, that pretty much meant we drove to Luckett's and watched Bluegrass. And, um, yeah, I just got really interested in the music. And a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with in, in uh, high school were, were playing tunes. So I sort of started playing again. And um, I guess my friend David Tiller had a mandolin. I'd been playing guitar, and I tried out his mandolin one day, and I was like, wow, it's so light, it's so easy to carry. What a great design. And, uh, yeah, the rest is history, I suppose, in a way. And uh, obviously you, uh, you went off to, uh, to, to school, to college. Um, was it at that time that you decided that music was to become – I, I guess more or less a profession. I'm I'm not aware of any other work history, you know. Besides, it's been all music all the time, as far as I, I'm aware. Um, is, is that accurate, or were you involved with other things before? I have a master's in education, but I did not take any music classes in school. I um, I mainly learned music from friends, you know, through festivals and and parties and hanging out. And I had luckily a lot of very high caliber. Uh, musicians as friends. So, you know, I did learn all the, you know, the circle of fits and, and jazz theory. And I actually remember I learned um, a lot of my first uh, chord theory and jazz theory from uh, 
uh, a girl when I was living overseas in Nepal in college. I did my junior year in Nepal and my senior year in Thailand. And when I was trekking, I did a five-week-long trek out in the far western hills. Our school was the University of Wisconsin, and they sent us out specifically to where there are no trekking routes and there were no tour guides and there were no hotels so that we would have to speak Nepali and we would have to find our way basically out of the bag on our own. And we had to do five weeks of trekking where it's just learning how to communicate with local Nepalis in Nepali. <clears throat> but when we were walking and we'd take a break, we would just grab a stick or something. And she was a music major in Madison, piano player. And, um, and she taught me, you know, one, six, two, five, ones and all the, you know, circle of fists and all sorts of stuff uh, there in the dirt without any instruments. So, uh, yeah, it's funny how one's education continues. But, yeah, I studied officially, I studied um, international relations with an emphasis on environmental and cultural issues at University of Wisconsin. And then afterwards I got my master's in education actually specializing in teaching English as a second language because I'd been back and forth uh, overseas so much. But the whole time on the side I was playing music and then when I got out of college and I looked for a job, I didn't really find anything in my field. Um, and I just ended up playing music and uh, traveling around with, with Danny nicely, uh, living at festivals, living in tents and, and various couches and various places. And, um, yeah, I just ended up teaching music lessons. It just sort of fell into my lap. And then uh, doing gigs just sort of started happening with uh, my friends and yeah next thing you know here i am of course eventually uh you got to be uh, super pro proficient on um on on mandolin and and guitar i'm i'm aware of some of your uh um your music in um in particularly swing and and in early jazz and and all of that when 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 did you decide to combine your 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 formal education with uh with your musical aspirations. Yes, in terms of b becoming a music educator. I couldn't help it. it. It was one of those things where I've always taught. I've always taught, like, taught swimming lessons when I was in high school. I taught, um, I was a white rider raft guide. I, I've taught riding, horse riding. I've, I've always taught things. So it was just a matter of what. And I've taught English as a second language, so I do that on and off. Um, and, uh, the fact that I knew how to play music, I actually started by just having friends that really wanted to play who said, oh, will you show me how to play? Will you show me how to play that on the guitar? And, and so I started teaching them, and then people started saying, man, you're a great teacher. And then they started giving me money for it. And then I started getting hired to teach at music camps. And, and then I started running my own music camps. And then, um, you know, it's it just sort of – and then, like, when I ran the Loudon Bluegrass Festival – you know, I really wanted a lot of the element of the festival to be uh, helping people discover the, the magic of music, you know, the joy of playing with other humans, the, like, you know, unlocking their inner, inner musician-ness. Um, and I think, you know, for me, having learned a lot of my music, going to, like, the Galax Fiddlers Convention and Moy River Fiddlers Convention and just these places where I would, I would sit around in a field and I learned... I learned tunes, I learned theory, I learned chord structures and comping. And, and so, you know, at the Loudon Festival, which I know you, you helped me uh, at a number of times, I always had a lot of workshop jams and, and like an Irish jam schedule, the swing jazz jam schedule, the bluegrass jam, because I personally like to jam with all of those different genres. 
And so I love to let people sort of experience and, and discover those genres themselves, you know. And actually really, I really get into, like, inspiring people and having that spark where I could see people get really excited in whatever I'm teaching them, you know, whether it's I teach mandolin guitar and ukulele. I teach it in person. I teach it at camps. I teach it online. Um, but even when I'm teaching English or anything, I just love it when people get really excited and they're like, oh, I get it. And I'm like, yay, all right. It's really fun, you know. It, lives get changed, you know. I've, I've been going down um, back and forth between Virginia and New York the last few years, and I go to festivals and I go to jams, and it's so fun to see how many people at the local jams, um, whether it's the D.C. area or, or the New York area, are, are in the jams and sometimes even leading the jams that used to be students of mine that I got started playing music. So I find that very rewarding. And uh, also, uh, how did you uh, begin to get involved as a photo uh, journalist? I'm, I'm very aware, of course, of your uh, writing and photography for uh, John Lawless and uh, Bluegrass Today. Uh, how did that come about? Um, well, I've always liked photography. So I did study some photography in college. And my, my best friend when I was a kid, Maura Larson, also she studied photography. And she got a photography scholarship to Germany uh, in college, and, and I'd gone to visit her there. So photography was just fun. And then, actually, that was an accident, too, because um, I'm kind of like Forrest Gump a little bit, right? <laughs> just sort of end up falling into things. But um, I had just broken the Guinness Book world record in 2012, I believe, um, at the Gaelic Fiddler's Convention where I, I made the largest mandolin ensemble of, of all time. Um, I think we had 389 mandolins in that band that year. And, um, and so I sent John Lawless uh, an email just telling him what happened, you know. And, I, you know, I wasn't even thinking of being published, really. I was just thinking you know, oh, here's a good story. Let me tell you what happened, you know, and, and he published it. He's like, here's a great little letter telling us about uh, the Guinness attempt at, at Daylax this year. And he, then he asked me to start covering other festivals and events and, uh, and doing photography as well. And so I thought, wow, this is great. This is fun. I love doing this. And I've always liked doing photojournalism. Um, I would love to actually make that a job too. And, you know, if I could, there's so many hats I like wearing, but I love doing photos and, yeah. And and for the record, because I'm sure inquiring minds demand to know, in the mandolin orchestra, what tunes were, what, what tunes did, did 389 mandolins play? I decided to give us twice as much time as we'd need. So just in case Guinness argued that we didn't have enough time, so I made us do four songs. And I picked four songs that I thought everyone in all those genres should know. So I did Old Joe Clark. I did Soldier's Joy, Angeline the Baker, and Cripple Creek. And a lot of people said, oh, well, I probably won't know the tunes. And I said what the four tunes were, and they said, oh, I know those. Oh, my God, everybody knows those. And I said, exactly. <laughs> so how, how on earth did you stage 389 man mandolins for 15 to 17 minutes uh, for four tunes? Well, I had to, for Guinness's approval, because if you don't get the Guinness adjudicator, which was like $7,000 or something crazy, I don't remember exactly, but you had to make sure to video the entire process of the sign-in of everybody. You had to have photos. You had to have press coverage. You had to radio, TV, news, you know. And so I got all those things, and I signed everybody in at a big table, got a big, uh, <clears throat> you know, sign-in uh, banner made for the table, and then I numbered it all. It was really, you know, letting my OCD skills just go wild. So I had it all numbered and, and, and had the camera pointing right on it. 
and then I use the cement stands of Galax uh, where everybody watches, you know, under the overhang because that would give us shade and that would also enable everybody on those stands to be seen as they're playing so that I could have a, you know, video camera sweeping the whole thing, showing that no one stopped playing the whole time. And, and it worked. Um, and then in 2012, I think a lot of people thought, oh, this is never going to work. And it did. And it got approval from Guinness. But I could talk to someone at Guinness. I could, you know, call, I called them ahead and I triple checked everything. And I called them afterwards and I explained everything. And, um, and they accepted it. But then I, I got pressured into it from a lot of people because then the, the Greeks on the Isle of Crete beat us um, at like 414 or something, Manlands. Um, and so everyone kept saying, you know, the Greeks got our, our, our record now. The Cretans took, beat us. So um, then uh, I got pressured into doing it again. And I thought, oh, so much stress. It's like all on me, and it's just so stressful. Oh, I don't want to do this. But I did it again in 2015. But this time they, like, did it with all humans at Guinness. Um, it, was, it was a completely different experience. We did it, and then... Um, I submitted it basically the same way, but this time we had really nice video coverage because everyone knew it got approved the first time. So I had people volunteering to do high-diff video editing, and, and I had all sorts of people on cameras, and I had news crews out the wazoo because they were like, she's taking it back. And, uh, and I even made hats, and I wondered if I jinxed it when I made the hats. But anyway, they did not approve it. They said that we had an open air, and we had to have a closed-walled place. But, you know, these are the things that make good stories through life, you know. Remember that time. And if you appreciate the humor in most things, most things are funny, you know. And if you can find that humor, and I think that's another thing I like to sort of capture, both when I'm teaching and when I'm running a campus, you can make people laugh. It makes them relax. It makes them enjoy things. If you're doing a show and you can say something funny or do something funny, um, it, 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 it's it's therapeutic but it also helps people learn it helps people relax it helps things sink in well speaking speaking uh, of of good things through life uh jumping back uh, um uh, probably a couple of decades um your your travels while while you were in school to um southeast asia um obviously had a profound impact on you because, um, at least by my own uh, counting, uh, decades later, it turned into a, um, an extraordinary documentary, uh, the Mountain Music Project. Can, can you go back to your, your first trips in, uh, in Asia and, and talk about the, uh, uh, the impact it had on you then and how years later it, um, it transitioned to this uh, wonderful documentary film? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, I think one of the things that often pulls people to Nepal is, oh, they have beautiful mountains, um, they have good curries, uh, you know, you know, really cool-looking photos coming out of there. Uh, but one of the things that makes people go back over and over again and get really addicted is the people are so fun, and they're so nice, and they're so funny. I mean, really, I've, I've traveled a fair bit throughout the world, and um, – Nepal always calls me back because they're the funniest and the nicest people as a, you know, I mean, there's always going to be one or two people who are just like, Oh my God, him, you know, <laughs> but in general, uh, as a, as a country, as a nation of people, they are really by far ridiculously fun and funny and nice. And that's what always pulls me back. Um, and also they're very creative. 
Paul and rural Virginia are so similar. I mean, yeah, they both make moonshine and they both uh, are, are really funny and, and creative and, and make stuff that they need. Um, and we captured a lot of that in the film, the, the Mountain Music Project. And our director, uh, Jake Pinchansky, he, uh, he said after he made the film, he's like, I was really surprised. You know, he did an interview. He was like, oh, I was really surprised by how similar the two cultures were. And I said, well, I wasn't surprised. That's the whole reason I wanted to make the film in the first place. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, when I said how similar they were, no one believed me. But now there's a, a film out, a documentary uh, film called The Mountain Music Project, which uh, you can get on DVD. Please do buy the DVD. It also comes with CDs that you can get off our website, mountainmusicproject.com. Um, but then it's also on Amazon Prime. So if you just want to stream it, it's there. Um, anyway, so it'll show you it bounces back and forth between Virginia and it, actually even Taylorstown and, uh, you know, back to Nepal. And then we multi-tracked for a CD with that, too. So, you know, we have people like Tim O'Brien and Tony Trishka and Curtis Birch and Abigail Washburn and, and me and Danny Nicely, of course, and, and, uh, and a bunch of Nepali people from, from villages that, um, you know, some of whom had not even done a, a serious recording before, all sort of through the joys of multi-tracking on this uh, great CD together that Danny Nicely produced. Um, so, yeah, definitely check out. And if you do get the CD, uh, there's a 16-page booklet inside the cover. So you won't get that if you just do a download. But a lot of people don't even notice it. But it's a really nice booklet. And and since, uh, and since uh, you know, this is a primarily a... Um, a, an interview which is going to be of interest to to uh, uh, bluegrass fans and and professionals. Can can you describe Nepalese music or or describe some of the similarities in comparison between um, um, uh, Appalachian roots music and a uh, traditional Nepalese music? Yeah. So the you know, you think about Indian music has all those in, interesting microtones and, and weird trippy raga things and, and Chinese music, it sounds really foreign. But the weird thing is that Nepali music sounds very Appalachian and it's usually like a two-part fiddle tune um, and often, and it's, it's, it's our scales, it's the same scales. Um, and the storylines are the same for the singing song. So when Danny and I first went over there, uh, well, when I first brought him over. I wanted him to meet a lot of my friends that I'd known from college. And so I sort of talked him into coming to Nepal and India with me. And um, the first day we were hanging out with some of the musicians, the Gandharva musicians, uh, we left a, a little recording going as we were chatting with everybody so we could hear it when we got back to the hotel. And we got home. He said, oh, my gosh, not only are their scales the similar, but in the structure, the tune's similar, but they're actually playing Sally Ann. Check this out. And I listened to him. I was like, oh, yeah, they are playing Sally Ann. So the next day, we went back to the same guys that we just kicked off Sally Ann, and they were like, hey, you already learned our songs. And we are like, nope, just a weird coincidence. We have the exact same melody. And they were like, whoa. <laughs> so, um, it kind of went on from there, and then... Like, you know, uh, Danny would sing, like, Cuckold Hen, and I would translate it, and then they would do one that had a similar theme, or My Home's Across the Blue Ridge Mountains, or, or something like that. There's so many similar themes, because mountain people, you know, that often have to travel for work and then miss their home. And um, But it is really kind of fun. And so they've mostly been doing sort of old time. Um, and then in the last generation or so, they've started doing more improvisation. So kind of like how old time sort of evolved into bluegrass. Um, not that 
Bluegrass is higher than old time. A lot of friends that have just got offended, I'm sure, old time is just as good. But, you know, it, it started pulling in improvisation to get into bluegrass and jazzgrass and jamgrass and everything. Um, now you see more and more of the Nepali sarangi players or, you know, traditional musicians doing more with improving and also with fusion of other musical styles. Um, and I've traveled around with, uh, like, Sham Nepali and Pramod Upadhyaya and, and Kapoor and, and a number of other musicians, uh, Manoj Mahat, Prem Raja Mahat. Um, and we've done shows at Smithsonian Folklife Festival, at National Geographic, at the Smithsonian, um, at the Ruby Museum, at Gray Fox Bluegrass Festival. Uh, we performed there um, with the Himalayan Appalachian fusion stuff. So I'm pretty sure we had the first Nepali Sarangi at Gray Fox. Uh, can you describe um, um, what their traditional instrumentation is like? Yeah, yeah. So the the main thing for the well, there's different ethnicities. There's a lot of ethnicities. There's over a hundred languages in Nepal, but the the lingua franca is Nepali, and probably the most uh, well known of the musicians is the musician cast is the Gandharvas. And they are most known for playing the sarangi, which is a four-string fiddle, and it's often cross-tuned. And they play it, uh, it you know, it's, it's got a goat skin top on it with a movable bridge um, and the, the four strings. And uh, then they'll have a, a flute, which they call a bonsuri, but it's basically a bamboo flute. And then they have a drum, which is called a model, which has a drum, drum head on each side with a little concentric circle of, um, like, metal dust in the middle to make it sound boom, make it have a nice tone. Sometimes you'll also hear tablas, which are what I studied when I was um, an undergrad. Um, and it, it, it goes really nicely with the bluegrass instrumentation. So, you know, if folks are just wanting to, to check out, they can always check out the you know official stuff, but they can also just go on YouTube and put in like Tara Linhardt and Sham Nepali, S-H-Y-A-M. I also got him, uh, the first year he came, uh, I entered him in uh, Clifftop and in Galax in the old-time fiddle contest, and it was a huge hit. I mean, it was amazing. Like, the first day, no one knows who he is. He doesn't know anybody. By the third day, he had a hard time keeping up with all the people that wanted him to come to their campsites and jam and eat with them. And uh, and I saw, when I, I recorded his contest song at Galax, um, and I put it on YouTube, so you, he's playing with Danny nicely backing him up, and... Uh, and I knew I had the tripod and I had my camera rolling, recording him. So I was watching the people behind me watching him, which I find very entertaining. Often when I do a screening of the film, The Mountain Music Project, I like to turn so I'm watching the audience because I know what's in the film, but I like to watch their uh, reactions, you know. And so I was watching these old timers. And, and I, one guy right after it was done, he said to his wife, or, you know, seemed like his wife anyway, um, he said, well, I don't know what that was, but I sure did like it. And uh, and that was really awesome, you know, because um, he played a traditional Nepali tune, and he kind of jammed it out with uh, with guitar chords, um, which more and more the Nepalis are starting to, you know, get guitars in their bands, but traditionally it wasn't there. So. And and just as an aside, uh, assuming that uh, that traditionally uh, no one no one over there is tuning to A four forty, how do you accommodate that? Honestly, in the last 10 years that I've been going back and forth, that has changed, and it has really helped me out immensely. When I was first going over there, you know, and certainly like 15, 20 years ago, everyone would just tune to whoever was in, said they were in tune first, which is how it was when I first started playing bluegrass. And when I first went to Galax, it was like, uh, the guitar player says, I'm in tune, you guys tune to me. And then you all had to 
tuned to them, and then you couldn't go to the next jam at the next campsite. Like now, I go to someplace like Galax or, or Weezer or something in Idaho, or you know, I can especially Galax with so many fun jams. I'll often play in one jam and then run across the fire lane because I really like the song in that jam and then I'll run back to the other one. And we're all in tune because we're all tuned to a tuner to get that 440 pitch. Well, now in Nepal, especially at Kathmandu, more and more people are carrying either a tuning fork or a tuner or something where they're, they're tuning the, you know, the standard 440, which as, a, you know, I'm usually traveling with a mandolin and retuning your mandolin, chasing people up and down, uh, as, as the humidity levels go up or down, it's, it's a mess. It's horrible. Being able to know that people are hitting the tuner for a note, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, so, yeah, the, the evolution is happening everywhere, and that, I think, is something that's helped bluegrass and old time and Nepali is just having that standard note, and then all the recordings, you know, you can, if you want to put a track down, you always can just quickly just tune to the tuner and go. Well, and, and and jumping forward to uh, to the present day, um, you, you've you've mentioned mul- multiple trips, but you you have introduced a um, a, f- a fair number of people um, to uh, Nepalese music and Nepalese culture uh, through tours that you arrange. Um, let's let's spend some time and talk about those tours. I, I know you have one coming up. Uh, I don't know if there are still openings available, but for anyone in- interested in the tours, if you could describe them, how often uh, you make these arrangements and um, and who are these tours open to? Um, yeah, these tours are, are really open to anyone over like 17 that, that wants to go. You know, I, I can, I have had some people say they'd like me to do once for whole families. And if there was a group of uh, families that wanted to do it together, I could make a custom tour. Because the point is, I know a lot of musicians and woodcarvers, and I know people that run museums, and I know people that, um, you know, do, do all sorts of things and, and, you know, some of the monks in the monasteries and things like that. Um, so I can make, uh, and also trekking, you know, uh, I can make a custom tour for various things, but the ones that I've been doing uh, so far are sort of geared towards music, arts, and culture. So if people just go to, um, uh, well, you can go to my website, charlinhart.com, but also uh, musicartsadventures.com is my tour website. They can see some uh, photos and some little video clips from, from last year's trip. And uh, we had a really great bunch of people, a uh, number of whom were professional musicians. Um, we even had a Hall of Famer. We had Tom Gray in there. Um, and he brought a little youth bass with a battery so he could travel around with his, his bass and play. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we – but not everybody plays – you know, some of the people uh, just were interested in music, arts, and culture and, and doing a tour that was pretty unique where you'd actually make friends and meet people. And, uh, you know, I still make sure that we see some of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites and we see some lovely mountains. And, and so I kind of have it so it's geared. So the first week is, is really focusing on music, arts, and culture. Um, you know, we'll go to, you know, maybe a couple of monasteries, maybe go to an orphanage um, where, you know, we can play some tunes with some kids. And then I set up a couple of jam sessions with some uh, different different types of local musicians that were Nepali musicians there, um, connected with a friend of mine that's in a very famous uh, Nepali, probably the most famous Nepali touring band these days, Katumba. But, uh, yeah, so I've been doing the first week. You don't have to be in great shape. Musicians often are not in the most stellar trekking shape. But uh, just if you can walk up and down a bunch of stairs, 
and, and some hills. If you could just basically do hiking around where you are, you'd probably be fine if you're, you know, try to be in fairly okay shape, comfortable shoes. Um, and then the people that want to stay longer than a week, some people I know can only take a week off work. I had, you know, people that snuck out from their public school teaching job for a week last year. And that's how I geared it so it starts on a Friday night so they can really just miss five days of work. It goes over a weekend. Um, and then people that want to stay a little longer can do a little, uh, like a six-day trekking week extension um, as an option add-on. And then I've also got another optional add-on, which uh, someone did last time and someone's doing this time, where I can hook them up where they can um, stay in a homestay and they can volunteer to teach English as a second language. Or I could hook up some other volunteering opportunities if they wanted also. Because um, a lot of the orphanages I've worked with are open to having someone come in and, or schools that I've worked with. And, and, you know, teaching some English as a second language as a native speaker. Um, so, you know, and then also I have uh, some of the people that are signing up this year had talked to me about possibly staying an extra couple of days and having me uh, line up a little tutorial time for them so they could study some music or some, um, you know, craft making for a few days. So that's really great. And so, again, it's like you're doing something that's fun and, and you know, entertaining, but also providing this option for people to actually really make friends and really make contacts and really learn something, you know, so they, they don't just get a bunch of photos at the end of their trip. They actually have, you know, knowledge and connections. And um, I did last year, I did one in March. In March, it's like 70s and sunny and beautiful in Nepal generally. Um, and it's not usually, it very rarely rains. You know, I don't want to jinx it, but it very rarely will rain that time of year. But I could, you know, especially if people wanted to, they had a number of people that wanted to go together, I can be open to, you know, other times of the year. If they just contact me, just go to tarlinhart.com and go to the contact site there. They could just email me. I'm just curious, uh, what, what kind of altitudes for anyone that might have altitude sensitivity are you guys dealing with over there? Generally, like I said, I, I work with a, a uh, you know, some friends. I have a lot of friends that have trekking companies over there. And if you spend a lot of time in Nepal, you will have a lot of friends that have <laughs> things like trekking companies. Um, but I specified that it was going to be a lot of musicians that were going to be signing up for this trip and that none of the musicians are like jocks. They're not like in training all year. They're not serious hikers. So, um, you know, I, I specified that, you know, we want to pick some really lovely treks that, um, you know, you get beautiful views. You really get the feel of being out in the mountains. But we don't, like, have to have any special equipment. And we don't go up extraordinarily high. And we don't have to, you know, like, go on no-cap glaciers. Like, you know, so it's, it's like, nice walking, nice hiking. So, um, yeah, and then, you know, we'll, we'll hike for a few hours and then take a snack break. And then we'll hike for a few hours and take lunch. Um, you know, so I specify that we're... And it's funny because out of the musicians, I have some great musicians that signed up this year and also some really interesting people, too, that are not musicians. But um, uh, And I try to keep the tours fairly small so that it's kind of intimate and we can all just sort of be friends and go out and see some music at night if we want to or, you know, relax or kick around or jam some. Um, but uh, especially some of the, the really great musicians that signed up, they're like, I'm not in the most stellar shape for trekking. Do you think I can make it? And I was like, well, can you like, you know, bike around town? Can you, can you hike around, you know, for a couple hours on a given day? And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, you'll probably be all right. Well, yeah, I know. Evan Sands is bringing his banjo, but. You, uh, Tara, uh, currently reside in the, um, in the New York metro area, but spend, uh, 
quite a bit of time um, uh, commuting back and forth between still the D.C. area and New York. If someone were to contact you for uh, uh, for lessons, uh, what um, how, how can they do that? And uh, particularly in in New York, where you uh, where you reside. Um, well, actually, uh, like I'm going over to Asia for a few months. I'll be leaving for the Asia in just a couple of weeks. People can always just email me um, through my website, you know, tarlinhart.com, um, and just email me through the contact part there, um, and uh, and I can do online. So I, I do more and more online lessons. I do a lot of in-person ones, too, and, um, and I can do groups and whatever. But, um, yeah, mandolin, guitar, and ukulele, various styles. And, um, and I've gotten pretty good at, I've, I have students that are all over the world at this point that I've been teaching online. So, you know, Skype and Zoom and FaceTime, and there's all sorts of, of nice platforms now that people can use. So, um, yeah, just, just throw me an email. And, uh, and if you, if you don't hear anything back, you know, feel free to email me again or double check that you don't have a typo or something. Uh, because especially if I'm like leading a tour or I'm in the middle of organizing a music festival or something, occasionally I'll miss something. So, you know, if people go to my website and just click around, they'll see some testimonials. Um, and there's musicartsadventures.com and then there's the tarlinheart.com. But I also have some interviews that I really liked that I've put up on YouTube. Um, if you, that you can click to get some, a couple of my favorites I put up on my website, like with Donna Stoneman, um, and and some some other people I think people should know about um, in the music world, but uh, but also I started some fun things like uh, Tarp Life with Tara series, which I've only done a few of. I wish I thought of it earlier. I've been joking about it for years, but so many great ideas we joke about for years and then don't actualize. And I thought oh, there's so many people that have really innovative, really great ideas in terms of just camping at bluegrass festivals, and so I I made this joke for years. I should make a video series called Tarp Life with Tara. Those are really funny as well as educational and inspiring of like how people can just like be brilliant in their little campsites or in building their own RV or, you know, building their own suitcase or whatever it is. So I think even in Nepal, I may, I may keep adding to that concept, but yeah, Mandolicious Music is my YouTube channel. So if people want to subscribe to that, um, that's always an option too. And I am on, you know, Instagram and stuff like that too. Yep, uh, I, I'll also add that you have uh, eight projects, uh, by my count, available on uh, CD Baby. In addition to uh, your YouTube presence that you've uh, just mentioned, you are also uh, available on Spotify, Pandora, Facebook, and, Twi- and Twitter. Yeah, and if anyone likes any of the songs that are um, that I wrote that are out there released, um, I do have on my website... Uh, free downloads of some of the sheet music of some of the ones that um, I got down. I have sheet music for. So I love to have people cover my tunes. So um, I try to make it easy. Before we get out of here, let, let me specifically note that your name is Tara Linhart, which is spelled L-I-N-H-A-R-D-T. That was Tara Linhart. And as you heard Howard tell us, it's spelled T-A-R-A L-I-N-H-A-R-D-T You can find out more about her on her website, taralindhart.com Thank you for listening to Bluegrass Stories. You can find more of our interviews on SoundCloud, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Facebook, and katydaily.com I am Katie Daly. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Bluegrass Stories